This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're continuing in our new series in 1 John. This is our second week looking at this letter. And, um, you know, as you kids grow up in school, one of the things you learn about early on in writing or literature classes is how to write the main point, a topic sentence. Maybe you haven't learned that yet. Hopefully you will. That's important. What we see today is the main point, the topic sentence of the entire book of 1 John. God is light. God is light. I don't know what you think about when you think about light. I think about the DC Talk song from 1995. That tells you something about my background. Anybody else think about that? I've had that song. Okay, some of you have been in Christian subculture for as long as I have. Uh, I want to be in the light as he is in the light. We're going to sing it right after church. Not really. (laughs) Whatever you think of the scripture, I think helps us understand uh, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what John means, what God means when he calls God light. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. First John, we saw last week was uh, written to a group of churches. It's a circular letter. And uh, these churches were experiencing people that had been a part of their fellowship, but were now leaving. They were exiting the church. And it's going to become clearer later in the letter. It starts to become clear this morning a little bit. But the reason they were leaving is because they had adopted new teaching about who Jesus Christ is that was contrary to what John and the other apostles had proclaimed to them. So they had created division in these churches, and they had left a lot of hurt and confused people behind. So John, being a good pastor, writes these churches who are experiencing people leaving this letter. Last week, John introduced himself to us by reminding the readers of his credentials, right? His credentials as an apostle. He talked with very sensory language about all the things he had seen and heard and even touched concerning Jesus, whom he calls the the word of life. And he says, my job as an apostle has been to proclaim to you eternal life. That's what he says in verse two. And we saw that when one believes in this message that John gave about Jesus, And the life Jesus offers, that person enters into the fellowship of faith that we call, that Jesus called the church. Now, in these verses, which Lena read, John lays out his central message, his thesis statement, and some of the critical implications of it, which he's going to walk us through in the remainder of the letter. So what we're going to do this morning is a look at the central message of John and then two implications, okay? So here's the central message, verse 5, first point, God is light and not darkness. God is light and not darkness. Now, very significantly, John tells us what the heart of his message was and what the heart of Jesus' message to 
him and the other apostles was. And then he says, I proclaim this to you. This is what I've taught you. God is light and in him there's no darkness. There's a really simple truth here that probably most of us missed. It's so simple that we assume it. John begins with God. Did you catch that? John begins with God. God is his starting point, not, incidentally, man. John's message is essentially one about the character of God. And because John is only telling us what Jesus told him, Jesus' message must have also been essentially about the character of God. So there is an immediate lesson for all of us here. Listen, in order to understand this world and in order to understand ourselves and in order to live fully and joyfully, we must understand God. It's, it's possible to get a lot of things right, honestly, and not know God, but it's impossible to really get this world and to really get our own hearts and stories without getting God, because God is the one around whom all things orbit. This is contrary to the way our world presently thinks. Maybe the most, philosoph- the most famous philosophical statement in the history of the world, comes from Rene Descartes, the 17th century philosopher, who you can probably say it with me, even if you don't have a philosophy degree. I think, finish it. That's pretty good, guys. It's pretty good. I think, therefore I am. Where does Descartes begin? I. The starting point for Descartes, the starting point for the Western world is man. It is me. It is I. But for John... And for the rest of the scripture, it is he, it is God. So John begins with God. His point is about God's own nature, God's own character. And he says, God is light. So what does that mean? What does it mean that God is light? I asked everyone in my family that question this week, my three children and my wife, and they gave some of these answers. God is pure. God is truth. God reveals. I think that's right. That's essentially correct. One thing light again and again in the Bible symbolizes, and also in our culture, it symbolizes truth. If you are reading a cartoon and uh, you see the light bulb over someone's head, what that means is they've had an idea that is a good one, right? Light symbolizes truth. Light symbolizes knowledge. Light symbolizes revelation. Psalm 119 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a what? A light unto my path. But light also symbolizes purity, holiness, cleanliness, which is why the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that God dwells in unapproachable lights. So that's also clearly amplified in the negative section of the verse. So positively, God is light. Negatively, in God, there is no darkness. And he emphasizes it. He says, there's no darkness, none at all. That's the literal translation. So John here teaches us about who the real and only God is and about who the real and only God is not. There's no darkness, none at all in God. Now, That differentiates the Christian faith from virtually every other religion in the world, especially most Eastern 
world religions that in many ways have a lot of cachet in our current culture. Most religions of the Eastern variety are in one way or another pantheistic religions. Pan meaning all, theistic meaning God. That is, God is everywhere in all of us at the same time. So Hinduism is this. Buddhism is this. Many Eastern mystery religions are this. They would say that God is a combination of light and dark, that he has good manifestations, and that he has evil manifestations. A famous symbol that shows this in one very easy graph is the yin-yang. You know this symbol, right? It contains one circle split into two parts, with one half being dark and the other half being light. Famously, in pop culture, this is most famously seen in the Force, in Star Wars, right? The Force is everywhere at all times. There's a dark side of the Force. There's a good side of the Force. That's very common to believe in our culture, but that is not what the Scriptures teach. That's not what Christianity says. Christianity says, on the other hand, that God is distinct from and separate from all that is evil and all that is dark. He is only good. He is only pure. He is only holy. He is only true. He is only light. As we're about to see, John's view of who God is has implications. It implicates every single one of us. It has implications for all of our lives. And I think it's fair for us to ask ourselves, will you ask yourself, have I been captured by a view of who God really is? And does that govern everything else I think about and do in this world? Is that true for you? Does your view of God, does your theology govern your life at all? A little? Or in every way? Or is it just one of many compartments in our lives that all have basically equal value. You see, when you've encountered truly the lights of the world, John's saying that you can't help but shape everything else in your life around it, around him. The reality of our lives begin with and are founded upon the reality of God's life. He is light and in him is no darkness. That's John's main idea. He's going to spend the rest of the letter breaking it down, but what he does next is give us two implications of that truth. So the first point is about God's character. God is light. In him is no darkness. What does that mean? Here's what it means first. Verse 6 and 7, walk in the light, he says, not in the dark. Look at what John says. Because God is light, You can't claim to know him. You can't claim to have a relationship with him and still walk in darkness. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, that's God, while we walk, continue to walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice. Literally, do not do. Do not do the truth. So this is the first thing we learn about this group of people who have left the churches that John wrote to. They wanted, in some way, to claim a relationship with God, to claim a connection with God, but to continue to walk in what John calls darkness. That is, to live in a way contrary to the revealed will of God in the Bible. 
So to walk in darkness means more than just committing a sin. That's not what it means just to commit a sin. All of us commit sin still, even if we're Christians, which John is just about to tell us. Walking in darkness, rather, means living contrary to God's light and, very importantly, refusing to admit it. Refusing to change or even try to change. Refusing to turn away. Refusing, to use a Bible word, to repent. So, practically... If God being light means that God tells the truth and that God reveals the way things really are, then what must walking in darkness mean? Walking in darkness means deceiving. It means lying. It means twisting words and intentions through manipulation. If God being light means that God is pure, and that God is holy, then walking in darkness means being taken up with that which is impure, right? That which is unholy, and refusing to let go of it through repentance and faith. Years ago, when uh, Marianne and I were in Tucson, we, um, we were in a rental home, thank God, as you're about to find out, and uh, we noticed that all of our windowsills were having condensation on them. And uh, this precipitation would not go away. And, you know, Tucson's a super dry place, so it didn't make any sense to us. And we couldn't figure it out. And then one day, our living room, we noticed there was a, a darker line from about here all the way down the living room wall. And I went and I put my hand on it, and you might imagine it was soaking wet. And what had happened is that there had been a pipe behind this wall that it had been leaking very slowly for a long, long time. And so plumbers had to come and and break through um, the wall, and and they found the leak. And uh, because it was a slow leak, we realized that the real problem and what was causing the condensation under all the window seals was that there was mold that had spread everywhere, all over the home. And um, we had to leave the house, I think it was for like six weeks, while they came and got rid of all the mold, and it, it was an immense project. Think about that. Walking in the darkness is like hiding mold. You know, the mold is sin. And and when you realize there's mold there, if you don't break through the wall and begin to address it, it's only going to get worse because mold thrives in the darkness and multiplies in the darkness. It spreads and destroys and and ruins ruins things. And that's exactly what John's saying here about our lives. When we're walking in the darkness, we're allowing sinful habits and thoughts and dispositions to fester. We know they're there, but we're unwilling to do anything about it. And we can eventually get to a point where we call what is evil good. That's how twisting and manipulative sin can be. Another way of thinking about what John is saying is that our lives cannot be divided. We cannot claim to know God who is light, and wallow in darkness. John says that makes you a liar. And interestingly, it means you do not practice or do the truth. Notice how he puts that. It's a bit awkward, isn't it? But it's the best translation. The truth for John and the truth for all of the scripture is not just intellectual assent. It's not just 
mental knowledge. That's a very enlightenment way of looking at this idea of truth, as if it is an idea that only involves our brains. And it's not anything to do with the heart or the will or the emotions. That's false. John says the truth is something that you can do or that you cannot do. It's something you practice. And so he's saying that you know, to say that you know, to say that you know what is true, but then refusing to act and speak and live in the light of that truth is a denial of God. It's a denial of his very character, and it's a denial of the way he has revealed himself to us through his word. It means you're not the real deal. It means you're a fake. It means you're a poser. So there's a negative implication. You can't claim to have fellowship with God, but also walk in the darkness, right? But there's also a positive implication. The DC talk verse, verse seven. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So what is it to walk in the light? One commentator put it like this. Listen to what he writes. Walking in the light is a willingness to be open toward God and his revelation in Christ. While walking in the darkness is a refusal to do this. So to walk in the light is to seek God as he has made himself known in the Bible and to seek to obey God out of love for God. It is to ask God for help instead of being self-reliant. It's to confess our sin, as we'll see in just a minute, to him instead of hiding like mold. It it is to rely on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness for our joy instead of manufacturing our own through worshiping lesser gods. And this is really important for John's purposes. I want you to stick into the text with me here closely and look at what he says. He says, walking in the light, verse 7, leads to fellowship with one another. Interesting. In verse 6, he said that you can't have fellowship with who and walk in the darkness? With God, right? And so you would expect him to say here, you can have fellowship with God if you walk in the light, right? But that's not what he says. He says, if you walk in the light, you have fellowship with each other. What does that mean? For one, it means fellowship with God implies fellowship with each other. Do not miss that individualistic Christian. Fellowship with God implies fellowship with each other. Or to put it more simply, life with God means you have life with the church, with God's people. There's no fellowship with God without corresponding fellowship with the people of God. Isolation in the Christian experience is not going to get you far because it is fundamentally impossible. It's contradictory. Fellowship with God and walking in the light leads to fellowship with one another. And so very practically, listen, friends, my friends, listen, being open and honest Being open and honest toward God about what's happening in our stories, about what's happening in our lives, leads to deeper fellowship, not just with God, although that's true, but with each other. Being open and honest with God will help your friendships with each other. Being open and honest towards God will deepen your intimacy and your community with people in your life. Uh, Ray Ortland is a pastor in Nashville, 
He's kind of a father figure to many in our theological circles. By the way, there's a great book called The Gospel of His on the welcome table. It's a great summary of what we're about here. You can take it on your way out if you want to. Uh, He talks in one uh, lecture he gives about his own experience in men's discipleship groups at the church that he planted in Nashville. And they call these discipleship groups, interestingly, walking in the light. And and he said that all they would do is is read through the scripture together and, and seek to experience God's love and God's forgiving grace through encountering him through his word and through prayer. And then they would come back and they would share their lives with each other in pretty open and pretty vulnerable ways. They would do things like confess sin and be open about their struggles and so on. And what this did, Ortland said, is lead to deeper friendship and community and vitality in all of their lives individually. That's exactly what John's saying here. He's saying that if you have vertical fellowship with God, if you have vertical fellowship with God, then horizontal fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ is going to ensue. You must have both together. And when you're vertical fellowship with God, when you're walking in the light and you're knowing God and enjoying God and experiencing God and your intimacy with God is deepening, one of the corresponding realities is that your intimacy and willingness to be open and vulnerable with each other also deepens. And do you know what that does? It prevents mold from festering. What it does is it helps the church be healthy. What it does is it excises and casts out the darkness and the sin that would hinder our fruitfulness and our fellowship individually and together. So listen, listen to me. Are you walking in the light? Are you walking in the light or are you walking in darkness? And the way to answer that question is not, although this is a good thing, is not to say, yes, I have a quiet time every day. The way to answer that question is to say, yes, there are people in my life that I confess my sin to. I have fellowship with others. Yes, when someone asks me how I'm doing, it's really this practical, guys. When someone asks you how you're doing, I know on Sundays we're not going to tell the truth, right? We're just going to say, fine. And it might not be the best context, obviously, to have a 45-minute discussion here on right after church. But if someone over coffee or over lunch or over a glass of wine asks you how you're doing, what do you tell them? What do you tell them? It is that practical. Are you willing to be open toward God and open with one another? Life, John says, is found here because God is light. If God is light, then we can't say we know him and walk in the darkness. But if we walk in the light, it's going to increase our fellowship with each other. That's the first implication. He's going to talk a lot more about that throughout the letter. The second implication, and our third point, is this. Because God is light, confess your sin and experience forgiveness. The first implication to the thesis is that we must walk in the light, not the dark, verses 6 and 7. The second implication, verse 8, you must admit that you sin and confess it. Look at what John says. It's very clear. One of the things I love about John is it's it's pretty black and white. You black and white people, thinking-wise, you're going to love John. If we say we have no sin, you're self-deceived. And the truth is not in us. So here's a second thing that we learn about those who had left, right? They were claiming... To know God while practicing darkness, that's the first thing. 
And they also claim to be without sin, at least to some degree. Probably, by the way, what that looked like was not that they denied ever having sin, but probably what it means is that they denied the reality of sin after their conversion. There's a technical theological term for this, by the way. It's called perfectionism. Perfectionism, which is the denial of the ongoing presence of sin in one's life after conversion. Now, personally, I've always found that one of the easiest doctrines to disprove. It's never been a challenge for me to uh, believe that I'm a perfectionist, but that's a theological idea. We don't encounter much of that today, to be honest. I don't think anyone in this room would claim that they are totally without sin post-conversion, that they're perfectionists. But what we have all met and who we may be is people who don't want to admit to being a sinner, who have massive, this is going to be hard for us for a minute here, guys, okay, who have massive self-deceit about the reality of our own hearts. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a British pastor in the mid-20th century And uh, he tells a story about when he got to a new church and began ministry there. He had been there for about six months preaching the gospel. You're a sinner and you need Jesus' grace. And after a few months, after a Sunday, one of the women in the church came up to him. And this is one of the founding women of the church, kind of one of the women that had been responsible for his getting this job. And she said, I think everything about your ministry is great, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, except for this. I am tired of being called a sinner by you. I am tired. Don't say that to me after church, by the way. I'm tired of being called a sinner by you. You know, we see this a lot. Maybe even in our own lives, we'll say things like, oh, no one's perfect. No one's perfect. How can you blame me? The point is there's all kinds, listen, there's all kinds of subliminal messages that we both receive and send that want to deny the reality of our own condition. What is the reality of our own condition apart from God is it's that we're rebels. We're sinners against a holy God. Maybe you're like that. Not a sinner, but not wanting to admit it. Maybe you're offended at that idea that you're a sinner. You're like that woman in Lloyd-Jones's church that cringes even when I start to talk about it because you think at the bottom, bottom line, end of the day, you're a pretty good person. In fact, you're better than most. You might not admit that out loud, but you really believe it. And you didn't come to church today. You might want to tell me to hear about your sin. You came to be encouraged and to get some good tips for being a better Christian or for living a better life. You hear that you're a sinner, perhaps. Someone who falls short, someone with whom God is offended and even angry apart from Jesus. And what our impulse is, is to want to show our achievements. We want to show our morality. We want to show our record of goodness, of charity, of wisdom of compassion, and on and on. If that's you today, if that's how you feel, if that's the gut instinctive reaction of your hearts, yes, I believe I'm a sinner intellectually, but look at this, God. John's got a message for you. Here's the message. You are self-deceived. You are self-deceived. You're not going to know you're self-deceived, by the way. Otherwise, you wouldn't be self-deceived. Part of the definition of self-deception is that you're unaware of the level of your deception. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And you might think, Luke, I didn't say I have no sin. I'm not a perfectionist. That's ridiculous. But I definitely think I have less sin than that person. Probably my spouse is the first person I think about, right? Definitely less sin than my spouse, no question. And I don't have any really bad sin. I mean, there's a few issues I struggle with, yeah, but I'm not an alcoholic. 
I've never broken the law, except for speeding. I vote for the right candidate, by the way. I tithe. I read my Bible. I hear you. Listen, I hear you. But listen to God's word. The possibility that you're self-deceived is real. And our problem is that none of us want to admit the fact that we might be wrong in our own self-estimations. We have an incredible skill at self-deception, at convincing ourselves that we're not all that bad. In fact, that we're fairly moral, but, but God is light and in him is no darkness, none at all. And when the light of God's holiness shines on us, what is revealed is the truth. We're all, every one of us, desperately broken and in need of mending. And it's not just the bad things that we do say or think, which are many, that need mending. Rather, it's even more so our attempts to commend ourselves to God and to others by being good by manufacturing our own righteousness, by saying instinctively, look at this, God, look at this, friends, which is, at the end of the day, a very moralistic and very religious way of saying, I don't need your help, God. I can do it myself. It's those of us who struggle with that that God speaks to through this letter. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. He doesn't stop there, though, thankfully. Here's the second thing, and we'll finish with this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's what John says. Here's what the scripture everywhere tells you. Freedom is only possible when we realize that we're actually way worse than we think. We're way worse than we think, but we're also much more loved than we ever dared dream. God here invites every single one of us to be honest. He invites us to walk in the light as he is in the light by owning our own sin and selfishness. We are rebels who fall short of God in infinite ways. My life is full of selfishness and anger and malice and greed and envy and lust. My life and my efforts to clean myself up only get me into more trouble because those things, when they're doing well, only produce pride and self-righteousness and vindictiveness. So what can be done? John tells you, you can confess. You can lay it all out there. One of Jesus' most provocative stories is when he tells about two people that were praying. One is the elder in the church who gives away a ton of money and is widely respected by the entire community and stands up so everyone can see him. And he says, thank you, God, that I'm not like that tax collector. But I give X, Y, and Z away, and I've never missed a Sunday, and on and on and on. And then the other man lays down on the ground and looks his eyes up to heaven and beats his chest and simply prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which of those men do you think went away justified? What does the scripture tell us? If we confess our sins, God is two things, faithful and just. We'll finish here. I know I already said we'll finish here, but I mean it this time. Okay, faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. God is faithful. God in whom there is no darkness at all has promised. In fact, he's done more than that. 
he's covenanted with himself on pain of death to completely forgive any, any who will confess their sin and look to the death of Jesus Christ to forgive them entirely. God guarantees on his own character to fulfill what he promises. If you confess your sin, listen to me, God will forgive you. But John also says that he is just. Interesting word. What does that mean? God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Let this sink in. Forgiving sins for those who come to Jesus is not just a matter of grace for God. It is a matter of justice. It would be wrong. It would be unjust for God to not forgive your sins if you confess them to him. It would be unjust if you look to Jesus Christ for forgiveness for God to refuse you. How can that possibly be true? Because your sins have already been paid off. Your sins have already been reckoned with, friend. They've already been atoned for, not just your past sins and not just the sins you committed this morning, getting your kids or getting yourself or getting your spouse ready and not the sins that you're going to commit the rest of the day. All your sins, past, present, and indeed future, they've all already been punished. They've already been dealt with in Jesus. That's why Jesus died. The cross says that you've been completely wiped clean in your slate, that you've been completely atoned for, that your sin 100% is gone. It's reckoned as something that doesn't count against you. So God can't punish you. For sins that have already been paid for, there's no double jeopardy with God. That would be unjust, and he won't do it. Name your worst sin. Not out loud. Name your worst sin. I'm not kidding. In your hearts, name your worst sin. Own it. Confess your worst sin. Jesus' blood easily cleanses them. Easy. You will be forgiven. You will be declared just. You will enter life with God all through trusting in Jesus. We fear confessing our sins because we think that God is going to clobber us, that he's going to smash us, that he's going to pull us over like a traffic cop when you were only going three miles over the limit in a school zone. But that's not what God does. God clobbered Jesus. God doesn't condemn us. He doesn't expel us and he will never judge you. Nope, he's already done that to his only son out of love for you, even though we didn't deserve it. If that's true, if that's true and it is, we can confess any and every failure and receive love. Is that news to you? Welcome to Christianity. God is light and in him is no darkness. So walk in the light, confess your sins so that you may know the depths of his mercy. He is faithful and just to forgive you. He's already proven it in Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray.